Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. In this episode, we welcome the acclaimed and multi-hyphenated director, Directors UK Vice Chair and founding member James Hawes, who spoke to us about his latest TV thriller series, Slow Horses. James is joined by fellow director and former Directors UK Chair, Charles Sturridge. In this conversation, we hear James delve into how he got involved on the project, working with DP Danny Cohen to get the colour tone just right for the series, the beauty of presenting London as a character of its own, and his approach to getting spontaneous performances from the actors. The Directors UK podcast celebrates the craft of directing. If you've been enjoying these episodes, please rate, review and subscribe. And don't forget to share with your friends. Now back to James and Charles. So welcome. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I was going to give a very, very long speech about what a genius James is. But I just want to remind you that he is one of the, he has a very distinguished television and film career, but but uh, not only of single films like the, he's I think one of three people who were asked to do a second Black Mirror, which is pretty unusual, obviously. He did a brilliant film with the late William Hurt, Challenger, which some of you may have seen, which if, if you haven't seen, do see it. It's an absolutely f- fabulous film. And he's, a, he's done kind of core episodes of what I would call the backbone of British TV over the last sort of 10, 15 years. Uh, I'm thinking of, of, he was part of the resurgence of Doctor Who, series like The Alienists, like um, the ones I wrote down on my phone a few minutes ago and I'm now too embarrassed to take out my pocket and recite beautifully, but I'm sure you'll tell. But I mean, this is, this is a kind of master of this craft and um, we're very lucky to have him here tonight, obviously specifically to talk about Slow Horses, but anything else that you guys want to bring up. Um, uh, I'm just going to ask a first sort of general question which is kind of was there a moment when you thought I'm going to be a director is what I want to be? I mean, is, do, do you do you do you remember that? Was there a kind of bolt of lightning? And not quite a bolt, but a very quick development. And it was at school. I was a teenager, um, and it was an inspiring teacher. It's as corny and twee as that. I'm sorry. Um, what was uh, the name or her name? Watson Weeks. Brilliant name. Isn't that a good name? Um, uh, an inspiring teacher. It, it really goes back to that. It's a school drama and and deciding that and terrifying my parents by saying that I wanted to work in film and television. So, hang on, you say a school drama, but I mean, were you acting? Or what was the what was the, what were the circumstances? This is deeply this? Personal yeah, no, it's just on, that moment it? where you think, yes, yes, yes I was. it's a weird thing to want to be a director. Not weird to us because kind of we share it. But I mean, not many other people do. Yes, it was. I was acting first of all. And then uh, literally school plays and on into university and realizing that there was something in telling stories. No, it was more than that. It was building worlds that I found absolutely fascinating. Which is obviously quite relevant to what we saw, but we'll just, we'll, we'll just step back for a second. One sort of last moment while we linger in the schoolroom, so to speak, um, that, that uh, how did you essentially um, approach this want, if you see what I mean, to be a director. I mean, before you actually got into television, what was the kind of route that... Um, Theatre was the route. Um, uh, I went to University of Warwick, which had the... And this is one of the reasons for choosing it. It had the biggest arts centre on the campus. Um, biggest arts centre in Britain, outside of the Barbican. Um, and uh, so that was the decision that there was a way in through theatre. 
Um, I grew up in Cornwall, so there wasn't a lot of available cinema. You, you, you were dependent on parents to get you anywhere. Um, but I happened to be at Warwick at a time that there were uh, a fairly extraordinary, and I was very fortunate with that, with the gang that was there. So um, Paul W. Uh, Anderson, um, uh, Ruth, I've now forgot, Ruth Jones from Gavin and Stacey, um, uh, uh, Stephen... Uh, and I, I'm doing really badly at names now, um, who writes Sherlock. <laughs> so we, we had a gang, anyway. Yeah. It was a fairly extraordinary moment within that theatre gang. Lawrence Till, who went on to direct at the Bolton Octagon and The Crucible. Um, and something happened in that moment that made it real for me. And I carried on into Fringe Theatre, then finding work at the BBC to go in parallel. Now, you're hilariously much, much younger than me, but I, but I, I remember specifically thinking exactly this thought... Television is a job for old men. I mean, now that I am an old man, I can tell you it isn't exactly. But I mean, the but but the, 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 you know, when I'm too exhausted to work in the theatre, I'll do this television stuff. What, but I'm, what I'm saying to you is, was television always the end point? Was it there from the beginning as the place to go? And theatre was just a route to it. I think so. Well, screen was. I dreamt a big screen sure. in in those days. And uh, I, I look, even now, there is no particular route. Um, there was an idea of going to film school. Uh, I lucked out with a short contract at the BBC that turned into multiple short contracts. They had this way in those days of moving you around departments. Um, and it didn't matter. In fact, it was useful that it was quite often on magazine shows or news shows because it taught you about telling story and it meant you made a short film every week or every month. Um, and I realised quite quickly that this was, well, one, it was an exciting place to be. Um, you were in the heart of Television Centre and all those different uh, uh, studios. There was a trickle-down of experience that you realised quite quickly you can learn from. Um, it paid the bills, which theatre wasn't, but I managed to keep the two going side by side for about five years. Do you remember that first film, the first time I said, uh, um, James, you could, could you go and do this film on X? What Ab- was? I absolutely did, yeah. <laughs> what yeah. Was- oh, God. Um, <laughs> it was on a crime show, yeah. and it was about... Uh, uh, car theft and I went off to uh, I don't know if it still exists uh, a Scotland Yard car pound in Chalk Hill Um, and you went through this strange door into a multi-storey car park and there were a few offices and I was introduced from the reception and directed to find my way up to to meet a chief inspector you're with a crew or this is you on your own? this is me on my own first of all and I knock on the door and he opens the door expecting the BBC to be at least six foot eight. <laughs> and he opens the door like that and has to pan down to find me at about there. Um, and then we filmed, it, it was about immobilising cars. It was that exciting. But the point was it was still about storytelling. How yeah, do yeah, I tell yeah, this story about a theft and how a theft is? And did you cast for it? Did you, did you have act- actors? We had awful bits of reconstruction. It's making me cringe to think about it. It's not. We have it's, that film. It's not. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we'll run it now. <laughs> Okay, but I mean, that, I mean, that's a story which is very familiar to me, and that that ability to be the only person who's telling that story is the way you start you know, yes. to find a language for storytelling. You do, and and to get things wrong, honestly. And again, the yeah. great thing about the BBC then, I, I I imagine much less so now, is there was room to make mistakes and and to put it right. We were shooting on film. Um, you had. Uh, cameraman and sound recordists who'd been finishing a big period drama the day before and were going on to shoot Panorama the next day and in between they were given, they were detailed from Ealing Studios to come and shoot your bit. Um, it sounds like deep history now, but it was incredibly useful and they, and they were tough. You know, they didn't, they didn't suffer fools. Yeah. 
Okay, so that was your start. So I mean, yeah. let's let's get to slow horses and 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 you know, obviously we're talking. We'll talk about this a little bit later on. We're talking about a COVID production, which has a whole series, a whole layer of kind of uh, new challenges. Which, in, in some respects, I think fall into the same line of all director challenges, which is how the hell do we do this? But if we go to your sort of introduction, your audition, if you like, if that's the right way to put it, um, how do you approach something which you're you're aware is a kind of sought after project? This is this is a very rare in this particular respect, and I'm curious as to whether this was always the case. But one director directing all six episodes is unusual these days. Um, did you know that when you went in, so to speak? Uh, I was told that that was what they wanted. Yeah. I hoped, honestly, at, the po- at that point, I hoped yeah. to negotiate it down to four. Right. Okay. We'll come. Uh, we'll come to. We'll come to why you want to do that. Because no, yeah. that's a very interesting point, I think. But I mean, a, a, as you, how do you prepare, if you like, and what do you for, have to prepare with? Okay, for a pitch like this, I was sent the script. I knew that Gary was the script, meaning one. No, six scripts, six scripts yeah. um, which in itself is a rarity yep. when you're joining a project. Um, uh, the book was obviously out there as well. And the fact that it was Gary and Apple. That was sort of what I knew. Yeah. Um, a pitch, to work a pitch like that is, for me, is days of work. Um, I have to come in with headlines and thoughts on the script, which is always something you have to judge. How much do I come in saying, you really need to rip up this beard or you? Um, how, how in love do it do, with it do you appear to be? Um, and I'll come in with a take on references i'll usually present visual references of films or other tv shows in what way i mean how do you literally i will have either on an ipad or usually i have something physical there's there's just something about being able to hand it to those other people at the table that they can look at you mean you're talking pieces of paper here printed out pieces of paper with images on them um i'll have an idea about how i'm going to turn the costume there will be a big discussion on a show like this about tone yep what does this smell like as a show what does it compare to people want references um, and they will also, there's almost always a discussion with producers about what in your CV will give me confidence that you can bring this to life. Yep. So you're talking about shows that demonstrated thriller, shows that demonstrated comedy and how those two might meet. And are we still talking about the first meeting at this point? Yes, we're talking about the first meeting, which on this occasion was with two producers. Yep. Um, I then had to do a separate, as it happened because it was a pandemic, it was a Zoom pitch with Apple. Um, and there were other exec producers, mainly around Keycast and Gary, who also had, I had to do a meeting. Just go back well. one step, so that the two-producer meeting was a real meeting? It was, that, was it, that was real. Which is unusual, obviously, at, the, 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 at that, that point. point. Yeah. Well, that, it was in, in the first, that was just before pandemic. Before the whole pandemic? That was before the whole pandemic, oh, yeah. Um, for whatever reason, the, the second meeting was virtual. Um, it's like talking about like Garden of Eden, it seems yes. so long ago. <laughs> um, and then the meeting with Gary's manager was a phone call because he was in LA. Right. So you, what, you finished meeting one, as mm-hmm. in that's the big hurdle. Mm-hmm. How long before they said, okay, James, you're our guy, or was it you've got to jump through six more hoops before I knew there you were hoops to go yeah. for, through. Yeah. Um, I was told that I was one of five in the first meeting. Right. Um, and it came down to two for the second meeting, and then I had to go through sort of an approval system with, with the, the various key yeah. parties. Yeah. And this is kind of an unanswerable question, but I mean, do you think in that decision, which you know we all think about basically, we all audition for in one way or another, do you think the future, by which I mean your vision, is what counts the most, or the past, meaning your history? Wow, what a question. 
Um, I honestly think it's a bit of both. It has to be both, obviously. Yes, but, I mean, it has but, to be but, some. Uh, You've got to give them confidence that you can do this. I mean, a big thing on this was, has James worked with this scale of cast? Is he going to be comfortable when one of these people throws a hissy fit and says, well, this bit of script doesn't make sense. How is he going to handle that? Is he going to give them comfort and confidence that he knows what sort of story he wants to tell? Um, so they will look to see some of the cast you've worked with in the past. And, and When you're asked that kind of question, what goes through your head? Moments where I've stood in front of cast having to justify the script or persuade them to do the next shot or whatever. So it, there are specific moments in my career where you've had to front up to an actor. No, no, I don't think they're not. But I mean, the, the, I mean, just as you said that, the immediate thought that I had that I've never tackled a more difficult room of actors than Coronation Street, not because they were difficult people, but because they knew the job so well that, you know, you were absolutely I on. I think you're absolutely uh, right. Frankly, everybody else has been easy since then. I mean, I remember doing The Bill. Yeah. Um, which was, again, a brilliant place for lots of us to learn and work. And they're shooting three units every day, five days a week. Um, you had to release actors not just by the end of the day with their scene shot, but by 11 o'clock because Sergeant Cryer had to go from red unit to blue unit and be over in custody. Um, and those actors would roll their eyes because this little enthusiastic director would turn up and say, I think it's a great shot from over in the corner there. And they could pretty much show you the tripod marks where the last <laughs> clever director thought that was the place. So yes, um, and then it's, it, it's about relationships, it's about negotiating, yeah. it's about quietly being confident and having a plan okay so you've done the you know you've done the pitch you've given us your vision you've told us the smell of the show i'm going to ask you later on what the smell of the show is but i'm not going to ask it as the first question um you're then suddenly at that point i know there's a covid story here as well but i mean you're kind of you have to start how kind of what is once you've jumped through the hoops what is the most important kind of next move, if that, if that makes sense? I mean, not suggesting it's a chess game, but uh, where, do you, where do you focus? So you know, you, you you've start? got it, yeah. but you now know all those things. Not that you held back. Okay, yeah. So uh, I was lucky in this instance in that I had an incredibly inviting and collaborative writer. Um, but I had, there was an awful lot of fart jokes in the original script. Literally. Uh, literally. <laughs> Sorry. Jokes. Well, did they come from the book? As I haven't read, I've only there, read a bit are, of the book. There's quite a lot of it in the book. Okay. But um, I felt, <laughs> and I've said this to the writers, if they were here now, I could have the same conversation. <laughs> the word, the page count, the fart to page count was too high. Um, That's a great title for your biography, if I may say so. <laughs> Start with the fart jokes and then work and your way on. Work back. And it's also, you, thinking about what the proposition was to an audience of coming to the show is that you expect a thriller. And I yes. didn't think there was enough thriller there. Right. And I knew that all the talk of the marketing was going to be about the British spy genre and the Carreisms, and that Mick Heron has written his book saying he learned everything he knows from the Carre. So we had to present that. Um, and fart jokes are great, but they get boring quite quickly. So it's about where you place them, how they're juxtaposed. So with that in mind, we went through working out how we could build and bolster and buttress the thriller. Um, uh, how character story could be developed, and we can talk about that in terms of episode one particularly, bearing in mind that in the end this is a character show. I touched on this earlier. People will come back because of the crazy slow horses, not necessarily a thriller element. When you say thriller, you, are you, is that a word meaning action? I mean, are you talking about people no, running I down the street? I think it's about or? intrigue yes, and okay. yeah. um, the withhold and the reveal yeah. of story and character. 
So let's talk about the first episode because that's the one we've just seen. I mean, and, and obviously, like all first episodes, people agonise over them because, you know, they essentially are the key hook for the audience, most of whom won't read the book. A lot of their judgments, whether they stay with literally with the programme, will be based on those reactions. How did you go about, if we go back to that first script that you read before your audition, so to speak, um, how much does what we saw now differ from what you had in your hand when you were doing your, um, your own um, presentation? Quite considerably. Yeah. Uh, the opening sequence took place in a train station. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which is with the, the books. Is a it was from the book. Yeah. Um, there was a much slower and uh, gentler introduction to Slough House uh, post titles. Yeah. Um, there was less thriller. Uh, there was less of Sid and River um, in the middle of the show. Yeah. Um, and it ended differently. We shot five or six additional days in November, so months after the shoot had finished. So I, I finished the main shoot July last year, early July last Let's year. Let's just do a quick dates thing. because you. Okay. Could, so dates, first meeting was pre-COVID. Yes, so literally January, February, whatever that was, 20, 2020, yeah. before the world stopped. Yeah. Um, uh, into prep in March, just before shutdown. We'd started prep 10 days before before shutdown. Um, We came back into active face-to-face prep in August of 2020, so when most of the world was still on holiday. Um, so did you do anything in that period? Meaning, did you yes. talk script and that kind yes. of stuff? Yes. Well, I mean, for the first, I mean, this is, I, I'm trying to avoid too much pandemic chat, but um, the, the, the start of it, we all thought we were going to be off for two weeks. Great, two weeks more scripting. Um, Apple were brilliant and retained a core team thinking we can use this time uh, uh, to our advantage to yeah. really work on script, to talk remotely about cast, to nail the designs. Um, and then there was a point where it was clearly going on longer and there was less we could do until we were back in real life. Um, So we were back in real life in August. We started shooting at the end of November. January was a shutdown because we had a positive case and we lost uh, five weeks. Um, uh, And and that was was hugely annoying because we then lost locations and had to revive it. Um, So wrapped finally July. And then in November, we were reshooting. No, we were shooting additional scenes. So there are six or seven completely newly imagined scenes in episode one, which is quite a lot. Okay, let's just let's stop you there because that gives us the kind of the, the overall kind yeah. of arc of the production. Go back to your first conversation, well, your first the, the subject, which was the changes to to episode one. Now I know we're talking about some that happened very very well, relatively yes. late on, but just to go back to your prep stages when you say when you've you know, you've got the episode, you've got the episode that starts in King's Cross, and you're pushing it or pulling it <laughs> into a slightly more um, com- um, yeah. workable form. Well, yes. I mean, first of all, uh, one of the joys of working for a streamer and being in high-end TV is the ambition. And so I knew there was the opportunity to push for scale. Um, and so King's Cross, I mean, it, going to St Pancras, it's amazing. It's got scale. It offers it. But the practicalities were that they weren't keen on having, in fact, they said, we're not having any representation of a terrorist incident training exercise or otherwise on our, t- on our patch. Um, you can talk to the various stakeholders, and there was also that. We, you can have three hours a night, which obviously wasn't going to work for a sequence of that scale. So we quite quickly realized we need to reimagine it. Somebody came up with a smart idea of Terminal 1 at Heathrow because that's been closed down. Um, 
Uh, so that was a COVID plus. That, you had an empty airport. Well, not quite yet, but at that point, it was Heathrow was still possible. Um, they then said, we've got our own industry to save. We're not that interested in yours right now. Um, but we pushed at Stansted, and Stansted were flattered by the idea that for once in their filming lives... <laughs> they could be the star. And not be renamed Heathrow <laughs> or anywhere else. They got to be called Stansted. Okay. Um, so it was a COVID bonus yes. that we got that space yeah. to ourselves. Although that is Stansted and Wembley. I don't know if anybody spotted Wembley in the airport sequence, but that's not all Stansted. So just break, very, very quickly break us down to okay. what, 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 what's Wembley. It's probably the easiest way okay. to do it. Uh, landside. So once River runs out through immigration... So once they're chasing the real guy... Uh, they're chasing so the real guy yeah. and they say smash the glass yeah. and they're starting the evacuation. All of that done, all those escalators, as far as obviously turning up at the train station, that's Wembley. And Wembley, why? Because I wanted scale, yeah. and honestly, Stansted, don't tell them, doesn't offer that on land side. You are a star, Stansted. Um, I wanted to continue to evolve the drum to give yeah. it expansion and yeah. not suddenly contract it. Um, and that felt like a way of doing it and make the chase multi-level multi to find ways of giving it that third dimension. Okay, so, you, so I mean, there's a big sequence which yeah. came out of you, the writer, presumably the... Yes, designer as I mean other other parts. Yes, we're well, re reimagining yeah. that. Was there a point where you felt I've made this too exciting? Uh, I mean, I'm asking in the context I of ask these people. Really. Uh, uh, um, I, I mean, you can no, by all means I ask these. People. I I don't think you so. I think the the key was it had to be anchored still on character. Yeah. Um, so we're with River running with him. And that was obviously a conscious a script decision and yep. a shooting decision throughout. Um, you're on Taverner's shoulder. You're in there with Spider getting stressed. So as long as the action is anchored around the characters you're going to meet and the tensions they're experiencing, I think it's still valid. Yeah. I, I, so do I, but I mean, I wanted to hear okay. you say that. Okay. So, I mean, just, just staying on the same, in the same territory and again, looking at that at first episode, the, the opening sequence, obviously everybody agonizes about opening sequences, um, but in the whole structure of the episode, what do you feel were the biggest developments that happened in that? Okay, well, the opening episode out of the titles, which I touched on in the introduction, yeah. was the handbrake turn. Yeah. Let me just list them. There was yeah. then what's called the, the going home sequence, which yeah. was after the end of the day. Uh, a lot of execs had an extreme nervousness that we were going to spend these hours of entertainment time with losers. Um, and especially the Americans were worried about us hanging out with a bunch of British losers. Was this how, how, can you give us an example of how this was articulated? I mean, Roughly because, like that, okay. yes. Yeah. <laughs> you just have, um, in other words. <laughs> and uh, obviously that's the DNA and the design of the show. That yes. is entirely the premise. Yeah. Um, so part of when I was talking about bringing more stuff in, obviously part of the thriller drive is Hobden and what I referred to as the fin in the water. Mm -hmm. And we needed that to be more obvious, more threatening and sooner. So we pulled it back in the edit a bit earlier. We crafted that there more. Another area of contention was what was the going home sequence, which was in the script and we shot it and it was beautiful. Um, the, what was called the going home montage, the whiskey montage. Yeah. Um, it is reduced to them coming down the fire escape, um, Standish in the AA meeting, and um, uh, Lamb sitting at his desk. We went home with many of the other characters, 
only briefly. Um, and I thought it gave a wonderful flavour of who these characters were. In fact, it revealed certain lies. But it was thought to be a pace killer in the middle of the show. Um, so that went, and we built in instead more Sidden River time and him getting further into the plot and the smell of something, um, something wicked this way comes. So in that last sentence or two sentences, have we got into the November shoot, or is that as... That's the, all the November shoot. So that, yes. that, that yeah. was where you, yeah. you, you, essentially, you looked at that episode we as a group. It collectively, and, yeah. and I have to say it was a very collective, active, positive conversation. Yeah. Even if we didn't all agree uh, that there were longer that didn't justify their, their, their screen time. Um, the idea of building more Sidden River, which then makes the end of, of episode two, another reason I wanted you to see episode two count, um, because you've invested in that potential relationship that much more. So those sorts of decisions were being made as well. And we discovered that we hadn't given flesh to a character called Simmons, who plays bigger in later episodes. So we've had that little bit of him on the screen in episode one mm -hmm. to just start to set up the status of that character. I mean, in the context of that group and that discussion, can we just talk for a minute? Because, you know, here you are working for um, definitely a multinational company in the sense that you've got quite a complicated, not perhaps chain of command is not, not the right word, but you've got a, a diverse group in the room of people who on some level you have to convince and satisfy. In those discussions about it's too soggy in the middle of episode one, we've got to do something about it type of thing. How many people are you, are, how many key people are you dealing with and how complicated is that? At least nine. Mm -hmm. um, possibly more if I really went through. And if, if we leave them at nine for the moment, how, geographically, how many in America and how many are in England? Um, uh, in fact, it's more than that. Well, certainly two key ones at first instance in America yeah. became four, uh, five. Um, and then I've got the production company's execs here uh, I've got Apple execs here, and it would go through those tiers. I mean, I, I, I have to say it was, it, was, it was pretty sparky, some of the discussions, but it was incredibly respectful. The director and the writer were treated incredibly well in this instance. Can you, because you have more experience than most of dealing with both UK television and American television and the blurry line between them when Americans are in England making shows and that kind of thing, or in Ireland or whatever... Do you feel that you would have had a better time working with a essentially British, I suppose, broadcaster, probably not streamer, but I mean, um, in the sense of you wouldn't be defending so many things or would you have had a worse um, I think time? You'd, I think you'd have to weigh that up against, um, frankly, resources and mm -hmm. ambition. Yeah. Um, and I, we couldn't have made the show you've just seen yep. uh, on a BBC budget, much though everybody at the BBC would have liked to have been able to give us that. Um, uh, I think what I was nervous about in the beginning was whether we'd be able to sustain the very British smell of the show and not have to, in some way, mid-Atlantic it. Hang um, on to the farts, you mean, yes, basically? Yeah. Yes, it, hang on to the farts. And all sorts of various Englishisms. Now, I think we know what you said the smell of the show was. <laughs> sure. in that first yeah. meeting. Uh, Depends on the curry lamb at yeah. earlier. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, so... so I mean, you get scale from America, but is that all? No, I think you get support. Yep. I think you get, um, uh, well, I certainly felt that uh, certainly across all six episodes, being the director across all six, I was given more status as a director since we're talking about directors here. Yep. Um, there was a fabulous triangulation of writer, producer, director, um, which sounds like 
it should be rocket science, you know, really. Um, that's when the best things happen, and it, I sort of think it did. Um, it's five or six years since I worked for a uh, terrestrial UK broadcaster. Um, that last experience was complicated by people's double-guessing and worrying and micromanagement. I didn't have that on this. I mean, this may be obvious, but I think it is significant in a number of ways, is that you're, you had a significant UK component, obviously, in the production and in the person of Seesaw. A, primarily a film company as opposed to a television company, but also B, your English component is not another broadcaster, basically, with broadcaster worries, I mean, which can... I mean, you will often, I'm sure, have worked for, so to speak, ITV and A, another American company, or BBC and A, which, where you're dealing with two people who are both worrying about with a, you know, their version of a broadcaster's perspective, but presumably Seesaw, who obviously had an interest in what the audience was going to feel about it, but were thinking of it you know, more holistically as a creative project rather than as a... Without a doubt. Yeah. And again, at the risk of repeating myself, really, but I think there's something about them being a film company and the way they treat directors... Um, really helped their approach to the show and, and the, the space that I felt I was given to, to work and create. Um, so not why is that, but obviously I know exactly what you're talking about and a lot of people here will know exactly what you're talking about. But what all of us may have slight difficulty doing is explaining why we're talking about it. In other words, what is the advantage of, so to speak, diminishing the role of the director to anybody. I never understood that. And I go back, I think there was a culture um, in the 90s into the early 2000s. In fact, a head of drama at the BBC, not uh, a head of one of the drama departments, not the overall head, was quoted in The Guardian as saying, actors and directors fuck up a good script. Um, it was also around the time, the age of that, you know, the... It's a hilarious concept. Yes, it's a good quote. Um, and we were just fucking camera pushers was the, was the other quote. Right. Um, which I like to think was a misunderstanding of what a director might bring to a show. But it was around that time as well um, that there was a particular collaboration between producers and writers and the, uh, the resurgence of the power of the writer. Now, we need writers. You're a writer as well as a director. Many, many directors are. Um, but I think things got out of kilter, out of balance. I think that is perpetuated now, particularly in the indie world, where uh, we are itinerant workers in a way. We're not held onto by production companies, whereas production companies and networks can do deal with writers and claw them in to be part of their brand. They can retain them as they can with their producers. So if you're trying to build a company or a network look, it's easier to do with people who aren't as maverick and disparate and likely to go off and, and find the next big gig, as, a, as the director might. Also, the writer is the commission, and independent companies depend on commission to survive. Yeah. Therefore, yeah. you know, that yeah. all, all the energy goes into gaining the commission, and often the director is not considered part, a crucial part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Foolishly, in my view. Um, okay, so let's just take, take a break from structure. We're, we're kind of still, we're going to do episode two. We're still on episode one. Yeah, only because we had a chat as side before this you know you there are were there were particular covid challenges basically because you were shooting in an empty london where no one everyone was locked in their house and you'd think that that was a benefit in some ways it was stansted's an example but outside aldersgate so that slough house there was nobody there was no traffic 
Um, so all the crowd you see walking up and down and all the traffic is us. We had to coordinate that. Um, and of course, if there were stray pedestrians, they were masked, which we didn't want. So it was a, a, it was a much bigger logistical exercise to get the traffic, to get it repeating roughly, as well as having marshals on corners to rugby tackle anybody who might try and break through the cordon. Um, uh, and adding rain, and the people at the Barbican didn't want us filming anywhere near there anyway. Um, so, it, it, yeah, there were challenges. So on the one hand, it was, was like a big set. It I was mean, like I a mean, big as set. in everybody's... Everybody, uh, where you would normally benefit. I mean, if you think of Paul Greengrass's um, sequence in Waterloo Station that we used as a reference, they shot that long lens through existing crowd and got the benefit of real life happening. They didn't need to coordinate it. Stansted is all us. Um, uh, everybody fact, you see is on the payroll, basically. Yeah. On the payroll, yeah. And therefore had to be COVID checked and cleared through security as if they were boarding a plane and escorted um, with one escort to every 10 people. Um, those planes all had engine covers on them. Um, there were no uh, tow trucks or, or, or service wagons running around the tarmac. All those are, well, actually, most of those are digital, added in afterwards, as is the jumbo taxi. Right. I mean, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll do the digital Sorry. stuff. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean no, no, because it's a part of all our lives now, and, and, and it's particularly interesting, I think, to talk about digital work in films like this, which are in a normal world where you're not kind of essentially on the lookout for digital work, you're, and, and it's kind of, it's in, it's in plain sight as opposed to a monster or something. I think the thing is, it, it's about opportunity. Um, it's about opportunity and making use of what you've got. So in episode two, there's the Hobden chase. Yeah. Um, that was conceived in the West End in a much more traditional London way um, and, and rather plush. I, uh, we should talk perhaps about how we brought London to flesh as well. But, yeah. Um, uh, we found a way and a route through the back of Paddington and, and through the Paddington Hotel. Which uh, when you say we, who's the we? Okay, so good question. That's, that's the writer, the cinematographer and me. So you're, you're just wandering around. We're taking a day and going out and we'll plot it and we're literally sketching through how that scene might play, what the obstructions are going to be. Um, we wonder about permissions at Paddington and then, of course, COVID's happening and they're saying, in fact, we'll only let you bring 15 people onto the set, onto the station, and you must remain six metres from any of our passengers or staff at any point. Um, so to some extent, that's then becoming something of a challenge. Um, uh, but it means you're going to play on the wide shots. You're going to keep the camera back. You're going to give it scale. That's easier to put digital people into. So you, you're making the most of it. Um, on one bit of station, they said, we don't care if they're actors or not. They have to wear masks the whole time. So we made a stylistic choice and shot it in silhouette. And you probably won't have noticed the masks. Um, and that became part of our theme throughout um, I mean, it's fair to say nowadays that you can't really shoot on a station ever under any circumstances without 11 people saying you can only have four people on the platform, you can't stand near a pylon and all that. So that although COVID puts some more extreme, obviously, kind of set of demands, essentially you're mirroring the sorts of problems that... Yes, I think it came with a bigger set of problems, but different opportunities. Yeah. I have to say I found filming in London this time still harder than it has been, and it, I'm not sure we're any longer able to boast a particularly film-friendly city, controversially. Okay, I mean, no, I mean, I, I'm definitely not going to make an argument on that. But let's, but let's, but as we've brought up London, let's talk about London because 
Why is this? London is a very difficult town, I think, to make cinematically original and to give its... It's partly to do with the relationship of the river. The Seine is just wider, so it gives you more kind of bigger pictures. It's partly to do, uh, I don't know, with the narrowness of the streets and the, the lack of ability to pull back and see the space you're in. But when you, you know, when you know that you're tackling six hours almost exclusively in London, how much did you think about how to approach it as a city? Quite a lot. Um, we were told, uh, th- this is where the Americans did say, we do want London to be a character. <laughs> Um, but I didn't want to do a heritage piece. So when you see St. Paul's, um, I think that might be in a later episode, it's glancingly out of the back of a car. Yeah. Um, uh, when you cross the Thames, it's with um, Jackson on his way through the streets and sort of Cold War feel. So we tried not to just frame it and catch it in the sunlight and make it too much of a tourist vision. Um, I wanted the idea that these spies all lived in the shadows and the alleys. and the under- So we shot a lot of things under railway bridges and underpasses and coming under Hungerford Bridge or whatever. So, and that really gave it a muscularity. That was one of our tone words, muscular, keep it muscular. Um, and, and that How early of, did that come in? Was that, was that in your early. first presentation? So we didn't know, but... Uh, no, t- t- tone discussions are such a nightmare that a good tone word is always... Good to steal. It, gets, it gets execs very excited. Muscular, muscular, okay. muscular. Okay, very good. Um, <laughs> I like that. Means God knows what, but it sounds great. Yeah, and, it, and it's amazing how quickly it will get repeated around the unit. Um, <laughs> well, they're really muscular today, James. Well done. <laughs> um, and and we, we put it in the palette with the designer and the cinematographer early on. So uh, uh, there were keywords shown, and we also had a 40-page document that was sort of images that we could share with other departments of the sort of things we were thinking of and the colour tones as well. But in those, in, when you're looking for the key sections of the city, were there sections that you thought this isn't, so to speak, this street isn't the kind of street I want in the film, this street is? I mean, well, there were two worlds. There's obviously the world of the slow horses and yeah. then there's the park and Regent Street. So yeah. um, we were sort of led to um, Barbican and that area because Aldersgate is as written in the novel. And um, there's something about the graphics of the Barbican that feels, again, that it echoes the Cold War. There's, there's, there's something of, of the 60s and the brutalism that felt right. So we then looked in that area for other bits that felt true to the geography or roughly true that could give us that. And we were in Hackney and Spitalfields and, and Petticoat Lane. And then for the park, we did try and shoot in Regent's Park, uh, as, again, is written. Couldn't do that. But I, I, I'll give you an example of a choice, which was that the meeting in episode three where, the, where Taverner and Lamb meet, classic spy scene. They meet on a bench. It was scripted to be um, uh, on the embankment by the Thames. But yeah. we've all seen that. So, yeah. um, we've seen George Smiley doing it. And I thought, well, let's, let's give it a twist. And I set it in a cricket stadium. We'd hoped for Lords. We ended up at the Oval. Um, an empty stadium. Uh, it, that hints at... I don't, mafia movies, possibly. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's something weird about a place that should be full of people that's only got two sitting there having a conversation. It immediately gave scale. It was a cricket ground, so it was a different flavour of London and England. So it was making those sorts of sideways moves on what was otherwise scripted. Okay, while we're on the look, let's talk about 
the bit you built, basically, the bit that you could control, which was, and I'm not guessing, but I'm assuming here we're talking about the headquarters yes. and, and, and obviously the, um, the, the, the house itself, kind of the, well, how did you approach sort of those, um, well, Slough House, let's the look of those. So Aldersgate has this run of shops and uh, the, the book described how uh, a solicitor had in the 1970s knocked through several properties into a chaos of, of offices. Um, and we managed to get access to a couple of them in, in, in the street, as imagined, in the novel. And then the designer did a rather wonderful job of imagining how the knock-through might be. So yeah. it's Escher-esque. Um, and and, you, and it's, it's dates, some of it's Victorian, some of it's bad 70s conversions. There's wood chip and there's bad plumbing and, and stairs going up and down different levels. So again, we felt like it was the confusing world of spies. And and in in terms of of the HQ, the MI6 set, I mean, were what were your influences? In other words, did you start? Did you tr look for what the reality is, or did you want to produce what in your That's head it should be? Yes, I mean, the the entrance to Thames House MI5, it, it looks not dissimilar to what we created. Yeah, the interiors of the rest of MI5 spaces and and GCHQ and and the like are like call centres. They are the most boring offices you can imagine. Um, so, and did you get inside to have a look? I wish I could claim I had. No, no. We did get an MI6, an ex-MI6 officer to come and advise us on things. Right. Um, he took, for instance, a couple of the actors on surveillance training, which they thought was just the best thing. <laughs> Started competing with each other about who was the better at surveillance. Um, uh, it would have been a very boring set if we'd just gone for that. And we wanted the hub, and we wanted it to feel, and this was quite a difficult level to set, we wanted it to feel sexy and now and aspirational for the slow horses who'd been left in the gutter. Yeah. But we didn't want to go full minority report. We didn't want to go to sci-fi. Um, and that's quite difficult. I mean, obviously, phones don't ring all the time on an MI5 set. They don't run news all the time on the big screens. So there are uh, licenses taken to advance the story and build the atmosphere. Um, okay, so um, can we talk about cameras for a moment? I mean, um, um, your DP, Danny, had you worked with him before? Or was... I hadn't, no. Um, uh, and we met several DPs. Um, we wanted to give it cinematic scale. It was great to have a DP who'd worked, obviously, on the big screen to the extent he has. Um, I had a very particular idea about the colour tones and the light, and that was something that Danny had embraced, in fact, came in with similar ideas in his pitch. Um, uh, and obviously, it's a it's a big job for a DP to take on with you know, six episodes to shoot like that and across that mix of location. Um, but no, it was a very good team um, working with him and an operator. So we really were the three of us doing lighting shots and 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 blocking. It isn't just the cinematographer; the operator is is key in that relationship. And you say the operator? Were you working with a single operator? Or? No, we had two operators throughout. So there were two cameras mm -hmm. at least throughout. I um, didn't always use them. It depended on the space and the shot, but um, a lot of it was planned with the two. Um, and the lead operator was very much the guy with whom I'd be choreographing the coverage. And how much time did you have, I mean, perhaps not with all the operators, but with maybe specifically Danny, prior to shooting? I mean, how much prep time did, in terms of when you're, when you're walking around London doing yeah. those chases, did you have a DP with you? or was yes. that? Oh, it was really generous. Yeah. And that was invaluable. And it really is, I think, evidence of 
you spend your money on the R&D because when then the shit is hitting the fan, you all know what you're trying to achieve. And if you have to switch and make a different plan, at least everybody knows where you were trying to get. Um, uh, yes, and that, that was invaluable. The, the, the design of the DP and the first assistant were with me from very early on. That's, yeah, I mean, I mean the, the designer and, and not so much first AD is obviously more yes. normal, but, but to have that amount of prep time with the DP yeah. is, is, is obviously yes. relatively unusual and, mm -hmm. and clearly a, a great thing. So maybe we should talk about casting and the cast. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the things that's, that's um, again, sort of almost schematically obvious in, in, in this story is that you have both incredibly experienced actors who yeah. have a kind of essentially quite a long history, which we're most of us familiar with. And then you've also got a group of emerging actors who have, mm -hmm. you know, essentially are less known to the audience and the, to some extent, point of the story is the people you're, le you're least familiar with are the key to the story in a sense. In terms of sort of setting that up both as a kind of um, a hand of cards so to speak, if that's the right sort of metaphor, how did you approach it and is, was there any I don't know how to put this but um, I suppose difference in the way you handle the, that those not two different groups because they're not two different groups but I mean I suppose I'm talking about the differences between working with it, people who are very established in their craft and people who are slightly less established in their craft. Um, let's talk about casting first of all. And we, we approached it as this was our um, dysfunctional, it was the MI5 Adams family. Um, and so we really were thinking about the ensemble at the heart. And we did some chemistry casting as well. So we thought we'd found our min. We tried out with a few different Louises. We tried that combination in the room before we finalized. Um, uh, Jack Loudon was already in the wings when I joined. Gary and Jack were already uh, attached, not finalised. Um, uh, and then it, it, so it was about building out from that heart and thinking how the pairings were going to work, how the, the, the triangulation, not up there, but then is strewn, played by Paul Higgins, who sits in the same room as Min and Louisa, how is that sort of slightly too keen, boring Scotsman going to work alongside the others? So we really did run some of the scenes together. Um, in terms of managing them on set, I always feel that you approach actors as you do friends. You have different relationships. Um, uh, friendships need different levels of care and attention. The, there are truths you can share with some friends that you'd never dream of sharing with somebody else. So you very much, you, you have to be extremely sensitive, aware, have acute antenna and respond to the individual. Obviously, with somebody like Gary and Kristen and Jonathan, there's enormous respect. Um, uh, you feel quite quickly what sort of note they want. Um, and, and literally, do, oh, well, Gary, for instance, had a thing where he'd quite like to run several takes together so as not to let the, the mechanics of filmmaking get in the way. James, could we just run a few, you know, see what happens? Um, well, everyone's crazy resetting the yeah, props. Of course, yes, him yes. Because they've got to get another hot cup of tea before he can start saying his first line. And yes, that kind of yeah. it's, it's one of those ideas which is always trickier than yes. it looks. But, but if it made him feel free for a moment to sure. do that, then you try and enable it. Um, uh, I was lucky in that very few, in fact, none of the main actors were challenging and difficult in the wrong way. They challenged me, sure, but with the sort of questions you'd hope they'd be asking or testing you in. Um, 
Am I adequately asking your answer? Well, let me just move it on to something more specific, which you've referred to but not quite discussed, and I think is always interesting, is what role... What role does rehearsal play in the process and where does it play it? Well, see, one of the intriguing things about an event like this is uh, directors very rarely get to discuss how they run each other, your rehearsals, and how yours might differ from mine. So my version is usually a tabletop to start with. Um, And obviously we're talking pre-shooting at this point. Way Um, pre-shooting. And the funny COVID part of this was that there were no public spaces open for rehearsals except the Dorchester, (laughs) which is where Gary and three other people were staying. All the staff on furlough except the head of beverages. So if you ask for a cappuccino, (laughs) the head of beverages will get to (laughs) And we sat there in this surreal, like the shining sort of space, um, turning pages. Um, I'd turn up in the mornings and the empty lobby, there would be Gary playing the piano, just on his own. Um, And we'd go through his character, and we'd talk about how his character, what was his backstory, where do we think it was, how much have we got from the books, and literally go right through the six episodes talking about how he evolved. And obviously the key thing in season one is he comes out from behind his desk and starts getting active again. Then I'd bring in Jack and we'd do a two-hander. And I'd slowly build out the family, um, the kidnappers. I'd, I'd start with them as individuals briefly and then bring them together as a little cohort. So that... Uh, and you chart their journeys individually. Hassan, you know, how panicked was he? How terrified? When did he get bolshy? When did he find courage? So that we had together that map, if you like, of where what temperatures we were going to hit. And- I was going to be a little bit more specific there, but take the, kid, the, the kidnap group as an example, because they're mainly working with each other and We're they're mainly working in... Well, yes. Uh, uh, well, definitely. Yes. Well, let's do that first. I mean, I mean, well, as in, they, so they, how do you approach that group? In every job I take, there is one key bit of casting, which may be one or a little group to me, that is a benchmark, a keystone in how the ensemble is going to play and often in the tone of the whole piece. And this, it was the kidnappers. They were written quite Marx Brothers. Get them wrong and it was just going to be silly. They've got extreme right-wing politics. You don't want that to be too flippant. You want them to feel honest and, and real, however ugly some of the utterances they're making seem to be to our more liberal ears, maybe. Um, so uh, Nina Gold was casting, who is, of course, utterly brilliant. Um, but we really worked on those three and, again, did some chemistry casting of bringing people together. Um, Can you just quickly say what you, I, what you mean what you mean by chemistry casting? Um, first of all, look as at opposed the pairings, to, so to speak, pairings alongside each other, mm-hmm. literally bringing them into the room. So two of them are supposed to know each other from Liverpool, from building sites together, getting them to read scenes side by side. Mm-hmm. Are they distinctive enough? Do they fire off each other? Do mm-hmm. I believe these two as friends? And then just pulling, so to speak, back a little bit from from that sort of conversation with, with I'm just taking the kidnappers because they're a specific group and we, we kind of know their geographical territory. How much time did you get to spend with them as a group? I mean, are we talking like a day or three days or? Uh, across two days, I had half a day, I guess, with the group. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, it's still pretty it's intense. And you really have to plan who am I going to spend the time with? Um, I mean, with, Gary and Kristen, I spent a day probably across two or three days in between their makeup and costume calls. Yeah. But that's invaluable because then when on a cold February night you've only got four hours to shoot 17 pages out beside a canal, you know what you're doing. You, you know roughly. You've shaken down the lines, any worries they have over dialogue. 
And if the person who said, <laughs> I love this line, Mr. Hawes, can you put up with the Dorchester for rehearsal? That'd be okay for you. Um, if, if you'd been given a month just to rehearse, would you take it or no. would you feel that that would, in a way, undermine it, the spontaneity? I think of exactly that. I think it would go too far. And it's hard to judge that because there is one rule that says you can never prepare too much. But you do want to leave room for some of the freshness in the same way on the set. Oh, um, uh, you, you get to a point where um, you can over-rehearse and you need to leave some space for the actor to come in in front of the lens and be free and fresh and, and not flogged to death by you blocking something out. Talking of people being flogged to death, we need to leave some space for you. Uh, so we're now going to move this into a wider arena. And I mean, I hope that some of the things that we've talked about have been helpful, but now take the opportunity to make it more helpful. So who would like to ask James a question? And <laughs> I can babble on. <laughs> Hi, lovely to meet you both. Um, I've got about five, but I'm not going to ask five because that would be annoying for everyone. So I'm um, going to pick one, uh, which will probably be like, where, if you know, James, like, where the kernel of this show and idea originated, how it came to be essentially, because that just always fascinates me. Um, and actually one other just add on, which isn't connected to that question, but I'm curious to know as to whether you used virtual production at all and how you feel about it more generally possibly as well thank you uh, first of all I think it, it goes back to um, Jamie Lawrenson working at Cecil Films coming across the books and he wasn't the first or the only person to come across the books um, seeing their potential and then marrying it with somebody who could bring the humor to the screen I think that was key because these could have been made as very flat, familiar espionage pieces. And I hope you found some space to giggle this evening. Um, and I think it was getting that dark humour, the character of, of Gary. Um, so, so to answer your question, essentially, it's the books, the opportunity to get the option, and marrying them with the right writing team. Um, I think you should explain, first of all, what virtual production is. I don't know if... Is, is that familiar to everybody? Yes, sorry. So um, I direct film and immersive work, so VR, AR, immersive installations, that kind of thing. Um, and virtual production is what probably a lot of people in the room do know, but just in case, um, really what's replacing green screen, I guess, on the big sound stages in terms of you create content for that, um, for that wall that would have otherwise been a green screen that's created in something we call Unreal Games Engine and can recreate environments um, and that as you, because that, um, the cameras in that space are tracked to the Unreal Engine, um, you can get the same perspective changes as you would if you were really in that environment, let's say a set in Syria, for example. Um, so, yeah, so I was just curious to know if that was something that you've worked with at all, James, and if you, if you feel there are advantages to it. Um, you see, I would never have explained it as no, no, me neither. Thoroughly I mean, that. The, the, my first thought is we need to do an evening entirely on, on that, that yeah. as opposed as a specialised um, subject, only only because it's not relevant to, to this show, but is relevant to us. And yeah. you know, we definitely should do something about that. The nearest we've got to it is using LED screens for many of the driving sequences here. So we, I did a mix of shooting on location on a low loader, and then to save the cast and us from four a.m freezing on a low loader somewhere on the south bank um shooting sending out a car to shoot the digital plates so it's literally a mini for those that don't know with cameras pointing in 93 directions 
and putting those onto LED screens. So you get the same effect of the parallax and all. But but going that step further, no. Um, I think the answer at the moment is conventional production finds that too expensive to even get their heads around. Right, I'm going to move on to another question, but that is a fascinating topic. Anybody like to sorry at the back there? Um, going to the back to the beginning, um, I'm pitching a lot at the moment, and you said there were different rounds of pitches, and I never quite know in the second round of pitch, do you just do the same thing in your as you did in your first round, or does that make you sound like a broken record? Or that's, that's does that show question. the strength of vision because you're just saying the same thing twice, especially if the same producers plus five other people are in that second meeting? Well, I think you've partly answered it. It depends on your audience. Um, the fact that you're back in the room means your first pitch was pretty good, so don't throw it away. How does it evolve is going to be the next part of it. Um, you can obviously, I think it's also about how you manage the team then. If you've got those original producers in the room, bring them into some of the choices because you're there only that they, they liked it, otherwise you wouldn't be. So now you can literally involve them, as we discussed last week. Um, I think it should all be shot in blue and pink or whatever it is. Um, and then expand it and explain it the next stage to the new faces in the room. Go back with some new thoughts, but build on what you've begun with, wouldn't you say? I mean, I think we should do one on pitching as well, I mean, because, yeah, I mean, yeah. we all live by that. And I mean, and the, 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 the truth is you can only do it in your own way, basically. You can't yes. really ever, it, it doesn't work being somebody else. But um, big thank you to Charles and James for a fantastic conversation. Um, thank you, Thank you to you all for coming as well. Please stick around for a drink and you can ask some, some more questions. Thank you. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.